Welcome to Writer Spark, the podcast with tips and tricks about fiction writing. I'm your host, Melissa Bourbon, national best-selling author, writing coach and instructor, and founder of Writer Spark Academy. Wherever you are on your writing path, Writer Spark has something to help you grow. Writers are always growing and learning, and what better way than to learn from authors who have been there and done that? Today, we are talking about adding myth and lore to your novels with Julia Buckley. So grab a cup of something tasty, settle in, and get ready to ignite your writer spark. Welcome, Julia. I'm so glad Thank you're you Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad to talk with you, and especially about our topic, which is myth and lore, something very close to my heart. I have a series book magic series that has a lot of Irish mythology in it, um, a 2,000 year old Irish curse. So I'm super excited to discuss this with you. So before we do that, though, um, you have a lot of different series. I was perusing your website to just make sure I knew everything. And I there's some stuff that I didn't know about. So you have about six different series, plus some uh, uh, suspense novels, right? Yes, I have some standalone things on Kindle. Um, I have four series with Berkeley, and then I had a couple of series that I had self-published. So, yeah, there's quite a lot out there. (laughs) Yes, quite a lot. So what is your most current series that you're working on? The most current is written under the name Veronica Bond, and it is um, the Castle Dark series, which Mm -hmm. involves... A castle, which is very unexpectedly planted in the middle of a rural Illinois town. And there's a long backstory as to why the castle is there. But an acting troupe has, is using it as uh, a place to do very different dinner theater. And, of course, it makes a very spooky setting for a mystery. Oh, very cool. So, so where is it set exactly? It's set in a fictional town called River Glen, Illinois. Okay. And oh, I'm is, sorry, it's called Wood Glen, Illinois. Okay. And is this the series that you embed myth and lore into, or is it a different series? There's some local lore that works into the series, as well as some kind of intertextuality. That, oops, sorry, that's my dog barking. Okay. Some intertextuality with... Um, like the very first gothic novel, which was written by Horace Walpole. And so some of that is woven into the mystery. But the biggest use of myth and lore is in my Hungarian Tea House series. Uh, It's interesting that you said you write about Irish, uh, like an old Irish curse, because I think most myth and lore rises out of culture. And so, of course, we all have stories that relate to particular cultures, you know, particular ethnicities who have all these traditions and uh, superstitions that are passed down. And then it just makes for really good storytelling. Yeah. So when I was looking at your Hungarian Tea House series, my first thought and my first question was, are you Hungarian? And is that where this interest comes from? Yeah, my dad is full-blooded Hungarian and his parents were both born in Hungary, um, at least what was Hungary then. My grandfather's little town is now in what is officially Serbia, and my grandmother's little town, they both came from very poor little towns, uh, hers is officially now in Slovakia. But at the time, they were both within the map of Hungary. 
And um, so my dad grew up speaking Hungarian and only Hungarian in the home. And then he didn't learn English until he was sent to school. He kind of had to learn it. So, yeah, you know, I grew up with my Hungarian grandparents feeding us Hungarian food every weekend and my dad telling us little stories about Hungarian relations or, you know, my grandmother had a superstition for absolutely everything in the kitchen, which again, I think is where a lot of superstitions rise because that's where people did their work, you know, at least the women of the family back then worked in the kitchen. So, like, there were superstitions about your wooden spoon and what, you know, if you drop a fork, that means a gentleman is coming to dinner. And, you know, like she just had a little superstition for everything. So I already had that background, but then I got interested in some Hungarian folklore and that I had to read, you know, through research because I, I didn't know that much about it. Mm-hmm. And that was really fascinating actually. So that's what I ended up weaving into the, the books. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of research as I write my book magic mystery series as well. And mine's on Irish history and the Irish deities and the Tuatha de Danann and um, Dagda and Morrigan. And and the more I research, the more rabbit holes I go down, but Mm -hmm. also the more brilliant aha moments I have that I can weave into my story because there's just so many layers to the mythology and the more you dig the more interesting it becomes right and the other thing i think that can emerge especially through your character for those of you who are writing um you know we're all fascinated by myth and folklore because a lot of times the stories are potentially unbelievable or magical or whatever but i think that we also like if we dig a little deeper we can see the reason why the story emerged, you know, just like with myth, Greek mythology, we look at, you know, oh, this myth of uh, Icarus and Daedalus obviously was created to demonstrate the golden mean and how you were supposed to choose the middle way. And that's why Daedalus survived and Icarus didn't because he flew too close to the sun. And, you know, so many uh, myths and stories that people told were meant to demonstrate something that people were either trying to teach or that reflected questions they had about life. So I think in a way, too, our characters can learn a lot of empathy from, you know, delving into the mythology. So how do you weave it into your story in particular with the Hungarian tea shop? Well, interestingly, you know that it tends to be kind of organic because you said the rabbit hole, you just tend to follow one little clue <laughs> to another. And so initially I had written a book which never got published and it was called Death in a Hungarian Kitchen. And I just wanted it to be sort of like a, a culinary mystery where I could share like lots of cool Hungarian recipes. But there was also this suspenseful mystery in which uh, clues were traced all the way back to the Hungarian Revolution. And so I was looking more into like history and, you know, the causes of the revolution and certain conflicts there, you know, just those details. Mm -hmm. But in the process of writing the story, I also wanted to tap into Hungarian superstition. So then I started looking up, you know, various superstitions, and that led me to Hungarian mythology, where I was reading, you know, for example, uh, I learned that Hungarian 
you know, way back when, and this probably goes all the way back to the time of the Huns and the Magyars, you know, but it said that Hungarian, in, in Western European mythology, the fairy tales and things are always about princesses. But in Hungarian mythology, it's about fairies. They don't really have the, the whole princess thing, but everything is about a fairy. And so there's all this fairy lore, which was really interesting, like what did fairies do and were they good or bad? And they could be either. Mm-hmm. But then there were all these... Um, sort of elevated fairies who were sort of like goddesses on their own. There were also witches. Um, in fact, there was a, a strong belief in witches and like a lot of the old folklore. I found this great old book online that is about 100 years old, and it's got all these Hungarian fairy stories in it. And there's one in which uh, this man is hunting for his lover who's been kidnapped and he goes to this deep wood where he it's so dark he can't see where he's going, but he feels something brushing his, you know, his shoulder, and he thinks that it's an owl or like the wing of an owl, but it's actually the witches, and they're <laughs> they're flying in silence through the woods, but he can feel like the brush of their broomsticks, mm-hmm. and it was really chilling. But I thought, oh my gosh, those details are fantastic, mm-hmm. you know, and so weaving them in. Is just kind of like pulling out a detail here or there and saying, okay, it just takes one superstitious person in the town. And then maybe they, you know, make some comment and then either they or someone else dies and suddenly this comment has more relevance and then people have to start looking into it. And, you know, so then the fairy stories or the myths become part of the mystery and even the police have to take them seriously. So So, that was how I started doing it. Okay. So when you, when you're weaving it in, so that's a lot of lore and superstition Mm -hmm. uh, is the mythology. Do you present the mythology as real? For example, in my series, well, first of all, in Ireland, there's the witches and the fairies too, not so much the princesses. Um, But in my series, the mythology is, is real. There's kind of like this magical realism element mm-hmm. where the mythology just simply exists, you know, right. and um, not for everybody, but for the people that are the core people in the story. And then that impacts how the story evolves. And there's, you know, this sort of epic um, plot line over the course of the entire series. It's very connected to the reality of the Irish um, mythology. Mm-hmm. How so? Is that how you do it? Is it more superstition and lore, or does the mythology actually come alive? You know, as a real sort of magical realism. I do deal with it just as lore, but the way that I, and this wasn't even something I planned to do. I initially, it's the story of four Hungarian women in the same family. Uh, the oldest, who has already died, but she's still an important character was born in Hungary, and then the other three are all American Hungarians. And so uh, the last two founded the tea house and they worked there, but through the, the Hungarian connection and just through family storytelling, they're all pretty well-versed in the lore and the mythology. So even though they don't believe in it, they reference it all the time, you know, like, oh, this looks like, you know, the cave of so-and-so or, Um, this piece of art reminds me of this 
fairy goddess or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So because they know so much and because the first mystery does, you know, the murderer leaves a message in Hungarian that seems to reference one of the fairy tales, these women become, um, what's the word that I want? They become invaluable to the police because they just have so much knowledge. Um, what I didn't know when I started writing the first book was that they also have some psychic ability. Oh. And they don't know it either. It's mm -hmm. something they kind of are discovering as this case is moving along. So um, the grandmother, who has always read tea leaves at the tea house, more just as a show, you know, like something, something theatrical she can do for people when they're there, until people start to realize that her conclusions or predictions are right on target. And, you know, so um, it becomes more and more clear that the grandmother has, in fact, a powerful second sight. And uh, over the course of the series, we learn that the mother and daughter have that gift as well. So that was not something you had initially planned for these characters? Did that just evolve and, and it became something of its, it's own? It just evolved out of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think initially I was going to write it that the grandmother, you know, people might question like, hey, is she faking with these tea leaves or does she really have some sort of ability? But then I decided, okay, this is going to be a family thing. And that was only once I started writing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you probably know uh, that sometimes it takes starting to write to kind of open up the door for, for more creative additions. Oh, yeah. So you have to be sort of immersed in it. And then it's like, ooh, I just had an idea. Yeah, that's exactly actually how it happened for me with my book magic series, because how I initially had it plotted, I, you know, first of all, the Irish gods and sort of the way I wanted the mythology to work in was very different and, and not nearly as involved in the story itself and in the plot. And the more I wrote, the more the story evolved. And I just call it brain writing. You know, when I'm typing, it's my brain working. You know, I'm not a um, super detailed plotter because I could never think of a fraction of the things that I put in my book ahead of time. They come organically and they come through the research. And this idea sparks another idea, which sparks another idea, which sounds very similar to your process. Mm -hmm especially in regards to this sort of supernatural or magical or mytho mythological element. Yes. And I, you know, I know people who are great outliners and, you know, I've gone to lectures of writers who write like 75 page outlines and I've, I can outline if you make me, but then I don't follow that outline <laughs> because once I start writing, you know, the outline is very dry to me and it's like, okay, the outline is this product that I that I have to generate, but it's this dry, crumbly thing that doesn't have any life in it. And until I start breathing life into some of these characters or settings, um, I really see where it's going. And I'm sure you've had this too, where there are characters I'm writing that were going minor, but then they 
being so fun or so delightful that I say, oops, you just became a major character. Same series, my book magic series. I have a, a spinoff series that I'm working on because her name is Hattie Juniper Pickle and she's the neighbor across the street. And she's just such a, a great character that she deserved a whole series of her own. Um, but you know, she, I didn't even plan her at the beginning. She just sort of appeared and then evolved. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know people have all different ways of writing and some people really need that outline at, because they love structure. And I like structure too, but it's, I guess it's a fairly loose structure because of course I always have the idea of where I want to go. But then, you know, I would rather wander through the woods to get there and see what I can see along the way rather than just go, you know, take the road straight there because then I can't get those fun little details. And that is, that is how things like myth and legend get woven in, too. That's a great analogy. I've done talks with a couple of different people on plotting versus pantsing, and everybody has their own sort of analogy for what that looks like. And everybody's mm -hmm. process is different. And that's been a big takeaway with other podcast episodes is that you have to find your own way of doing things. There is no mm -hmm. one way or right way. You just need to find exactly. your own way. I mean, it has to be authentic to the writer or you won't be able to turn out, you know, something, something pleasant for the reader. The other thing is, you know, the reader will never like what you write if you don't like what you write. And so you have to go with what is the most fun for you. You know, I mean, of course, we're still working hard, but um, we wouldn't be writing if we didn't enjoy it. And we have to find the most enjoyable method of telling the story. So, you know, if that means we're going on an adventure too, I think that helps bring a sense of discovery, you know, and sometimes we're surprised with the reader. If, if I'm writing a chapter and I suddenly realize, ooh, I think something bad's going to happen at the end of this chapter, <laughs> and then I have to manufacture what that is, but that has served me really well. You know, it's like you feel the timing of it and realize, okay, something, something has to happen here that's really suspenseful, or I think this character is lying, you know, or something like that. Right. Something that you hadn't planned, but that has evolved through the writing process. Yeah. So I think that uh, something you said is so true, and that is that, you know, if, if it's not authentic to us, if we're not enjoying it, it's going, that's going to be evident in the writing. And I think that's true in terms of the mythology as well. So you have this affinity for Hungarian mythology. I do for Irish mythology. Esme Addison, who's a fellow North Carolina writer, she's um, got this affinity for Polish mythology. And so her character is a mermaid based on the Polish myth of the mermaid, you know, oh, which awesome. I think is so fascinating. And one of the great things about mythology in types of books that we write is mm -hmm. that it exposes these different mythologies to people who might not otherwise know about them. I don't know anything about Hungarian mythology or Polish mythology. The Polish mermaid, you know, is new to mm -hmm. me. And I love that aspect, that discovery that we're bringing to people. Yeah. And I mean, even as someone with a Hungarian parent, I, I didn't know anything about Hungarian mythology until I started researching it. I think everyone pretty much just knows Greek and Roman mythology, you know, like that's what they teach in school, or maybe, maybe Norse mythology. But you kind of forget that every country has its own mythology, and so like it's fun to investigate that. 
Hungary is kind of a mystery anyway, because there aren't a lot of Hungarians in the U.S. Hungary is a little country, and um, I, I once was trying to get a tutor because I thought, oh, I'm going to learn Hungarian. It's a really hard language to learn, and you know, I, I keep saying, Dad, I'm going to learn it so we can converse, but it, I find it very difficult, so I wanted to get a tutor in the city who could converse with me, and they said, that's actually considered a rare language, so we don't have that many tutors, you know, okay. and that's in Chicago, where you would think there'd be plenty, but Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I think I recently heard that there are more Irish people in Chicago than in Ireland. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. But okay. I, you have the opposite issue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I read last year a book called The Ballad of the Whiskey Robber by Julian mm-hmm. Rubinstein. Have you heard of that? I have not. Oh, my goodness. It was such a great book, and it's based on a true story. It, it all takes place in Hungary well, and surrounding countries. And, you know, I learned so much about the history of Hungary from this book. Oh, cool. Yeah, and, and uh, it's really, really fascinating. But I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out to you. <laughs> they do like their whiskey. I, I know uh... – my dad and his dad were both whiskey drinkers, and they also have this drink in Hungary that comes up in the books. You know, speaking of local lore, what they love and, you know, their artifacts are part of that, too. And they make a really strong fruit brandy called palinka. And, uh, you know, my dad would always serve it in, like, these little liqueur glasses, like, oh, cleanse your palate. And it was like, take the enamel off your teeth, (laughs) you know, strong. And so I never really wanted to drink it, but, you know, he would just whip it down like it was water. But um, so in the book, I I kind of exaggerated Palinka, and I said that her grandmother thought it cured all ailments. So, you know, she was always giving it to people for one thing or another. But then that also gets to the the cultural detail of uh, they do a lot of, Uh, you know, because of the fruit trees and the vineyards and things like that. They have a lot of festivals for like a cherry festival or, you know, some sort of harvest festival where they um, produce some of these lovely, delicious things. Do you get um, feedback or comments from readers emailing you, messaging you about the the lore and the mythology in particular? I've met, you know, like some people who aren't Hungarian say it was really interesting to me. I never knew it. And I hear from Hungarian people, um, some who say, this reminded me of my childhood, you know, growing up with my Hungarian grandmother or grandfather or aunt or something like that. Some people, you know, a lot of people said, oh, this resonated with me. I remember some of these details. There were also some people who wrote to me and said, you did not spell that word right, you know, or something like that. And I did, my dad was my editor, um, but, you know, some people's Hungarian, my dad is remembering, you know, his childhood Hungarian. So, like, he was doing his absolute best and he was awesome. But some people's Hungarian is really, like, super great. And so they would read it and be like, oh, an error. And uh, also in Hungarian, words can have, a whole bunch of diacritical marks. So like if, if you need four umlauts or slashes on one word, um, it's misspelled if you miss one. <laughs> so, you know, they would say, this 
should have another umlaut over that letter or, you know, this should have another slash. And, you know, and that's fair because one woman said, you know, it might not be important to people who don't speak Hungarian, but it's important to us. So I was like, okay, duly noted. <laughs> Did you think about tapping into that particular person or to anybody that's made those kind of comments to you to say, well, you want to edit the Hungarian in the next book? Well, I might if they continue the series, but um, but I have, you know, at least had dialogues with people. And then sometimes I mention them in my, you know, acknowledgments and just say, oh, thank you to this person or that person. And like all authors, I tell people if there are mistakes, they're mine because, yeah. you know, other people were giving me good advice and I might have just not captured it well. I don't speak Hungarian, so... But of course, my characters do. You know, don't you love the way our characters are always more talented than we are? So, you know, my characters might be like super athletic or, you know, speaks three languages or have psychic power and I can just live vicariously. Right. I like to say they're my alter egos <laughs> if I were X, Y, or Z. <laughs> exactly. What are some of your favorite Hungarian recipes? Oh, gosh. I mean, my grandmother was a really good cook. And actually, my dad is, too, because he makes a lot of her recipes now. But, um, of course, chicken paprikash, which is uh, delicious, especially with dumplings. And, I mean, the old-fashioned dumplings that are made with flour and water. Mm -hmm. And they're like big, fluffy things. Because I went to a restaurant recently that was supposed to be... Uh, Hungarian, and their dumplings were just slices of bread <laughs> with gravy on them. Yeah, but I also love a dish called um, seke goulash, which is uh, uh, was invented by a guy who's um, no wait, that's a dobosh tort. Never mind. Uh, seke goulash is pork cooked with sauerkraut and onions and paprika and. Uh, it's just very flavorful and delicious. And mm -hmm. sour cream. There's always usually the addition of sour cream. I also love um, stuffed cabbage, which is called toltot. Uh, tot. Mm, I forgot the second half. I'll tell you in a minute. Okay. And, um, and stuffed peppers. So they, there's a lot of like yummy meat stuffed into vegetables kind of food. My grandmother made all sorts of desserts. Uh, she made date nut bread and pecan bread. They were called makos and diosh, which um, were meant to be desserty, but like you could really eat them, you know, with a meal or something. Or for breakfast. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And we would wolf those down. She made um, apple slices. I, I don't even know if she learned that in Hungary or if she just made it up herself because she would always harvest apples in the fall. And then she would make these huge trays with, it was like apple pie, but it, she just made it as one big rectangle. And then she would cut them into slices, but she would also drizzle um, icing over the top. So it was outrageously good. And, you know, we would just wolf those down. Oh, she also made chicken soup. And there's a whole part in the books about Hungarians and noodles and how we have so many different kinds of noodles and they're all handmade. So my grandmother would get up at the crack of dawn, make dough for her noodles, and then she would, this was the kind that you cut really small, they're like little squares. Mm -hmm. And uh, she would cut them up and uh, 
cook them and then leave them out to dry. And then she would put them into the soup, the chicken soup that she just was just percolating all day long. And so her house always had the smell of delicious food cooking because she literally was always cooking. Yeah, it's making me hungry. <laughs> hungry for okay, hungry. here's something. <laughs> Okay, I love stuffed cabbage. Um, okay, so back to mythology and lore. In in your writing, um, do you have some tips for other writers who might want to incorporate lore or mythology of whatever culture into their books to sort of make that organic or resonate or just to be you know as authentic as possible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would first of all pursue the mythology that interests you or maybe that comes out of your own culture. Um, we actually have a lot of cultures represented in my family. My mom is German, and I have an adopted sister who's Chinese, so like those are all cultures that interest me. But, um, you know, whatever culture interests you, whether it's your family or not, maybe you just love a certain kind of food. If you research that first and then maybe pull out what you consider the salient most interesting elements of that mythology, whether it's a character or a, um, like a habit that these creatures or goddesses or whatever <clears throat> had, or a way that they manifested their power. Like if you pull out some salient parts and then say, all right, these are definitely the things I want to use. Mm -hmm. You could then, you know, take one element, just one little element, that seems fun or, or something you could base a mystery around, if it's a mystery, if it's just plain fiction, kind of a similar thing. But you could plant that as an initial clue. You know, it only takes one person in your fictional town or real town to be interested in that. Mm -hmm. And then other characters can say, oh, you know, she's obsessed with Norse mythology or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But then they kind of have to learn about it to understand her or understand the clue that she left. And so slowly but surely, that gives you leeway to start braiding in those mythological details. You know, yeah. like if you learn, oh, she was fascinated with this goddess, but why that goddess and not some other goddess, you know, so then maybe they'll compare and contrast and uh, learn that this particular goddess had these skills and therefore... Um, they might be relevant to something in the present. If, yeah, and uh, it can lead to um, motifs throughout the book too. Right. I have a, a crow in my book and, you know, come to find out that the goddess Morrigan is sometimes represented as the raven and sometimes as the crow. And so that became a pretty strong motif that carries through all of the books based on exactly. that one little tidbit. And so it's really, it's embedded in non uh, verbally, you know, we don't talk about that specifically until the very end, but, but it's there kind of, you know, percolating yeah. in the subconscious of the readers. Yeah. And that's awesome because of course there's so much symbolism around birds anyway, but then if there are very particular links to the mythology and in, in your case, you said they, they live the mythology, they believe it. Mm -hmm. But even if someone doesn't believe it, but they knew, let's say, that a crow was significant to the mythology, then they still might, you know, become conscious of it when they see a crow. You know, like your main, your narrator could say, a crow landed on the fence, 
that reminded me of so-and-so's last words, you know, what did they mean when they said this? Yeah. And yeah, there are just so many ways you could weave it in through dialogue or through description or through an idea that the character can't get out of their head. Mm-hmm. And then it can be, it can escalate and become more and more important. Yeah. So, yeah. So interesting. Do you have any other tips for people writing mythology? Um, you know, as I said before, I think having fun is actually a really important writing part of writing. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to sustain it. You know, like, otherwise, it's just homework. <laughs> and you want it to be like a career, something fun. So, you know, I would weave in things that, like, I, I tend to think about a chapter before I write the chapter. So I might go days or weeks just kind of thinking it over, you know, about the possibilities. And then once I get some good ideas, then I can actually be excited about sitting down. You know, like even if I've thought of snatches of dialogue where I think, oh, this will be so great if he says this to her and then, you know, she says this and then they end up learning this. So it's, I think it's helpful to get yourself to that place first Mm -hmm. so that when you sit down, you can be just excitedly recording all those thoughts. Yeah. Um, and you could be collecting them in a little notebook or something like that. I would say also to allow yourself to be really receptive to what you discover along the way, because we're talking mm-hmm. about the need to do research with mythology and lore and to make sure that what we're bringing in is authentic and is, you know, tr- done correctly. And right. You might have an idea to go one way, but your research or even your subconscious that's been working all of this time might, you know, pull a different thread out. And I think it's important to allow that to happen and for you mm-hmm. to, to follow that process or that bit of information to be um, to allow yourself to be organic with that process. Absolutely. I would also say be open to the suggestions of other people. I work with a Uh, Well, I have worked for 20 years with the same writers group and, you know, we'll we'll switch out manuscripts and say, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And we'll go through and just kind of make our comments, you know, like, I thought this worked really well. What if you did this here? You know, like, we'll make a suggestion like this scene is a little bit um, boring. You know, what if this happened? And a lot of times I'll say, wow, great. You know, I'll take that suggestion. But... um, we might also be open to, you know, family members who say, you know what, I think this would be a good name for this character or whatever. Sometimes I do that. I just tell my husband, give me a guy's name. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, that character is him. Um, my agent has made some awesome suggestions to me, you know, where she'll read it and say, this works, this works, but I think this would be better this way. And she's almost always right. I mean, you know, like agents have a lot of experience and so they're usually right on target and I'll just say okay you're right <laughs> I will fix that yeah so I mean she's made some great decisions that uh, that are now very popular with uh, readers so and I would say um, that I think it's okay to take some liberties and change things as you need them as long as you sort of acknowledge that that's what you've done so f- for example in my series, I do uh, change a bit of one character and, and how this character is perceived in the Irish mythology. But I did a little note to readers explaining that this is a little deviation 
from, Mm -hmm. you know, what is traditionally accepted as the mythology for this person, but I wanted to have it evolve in a different way. So I think that's okay. Also, as long as you're, you know, you're not presenting it as, you know, this is the true mythology to, because you don't want to upset readers who, who know, you know, and who honor Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, another way that I kind of weave it in is that there are characters now, like, for example, the police officer who the main character ends up dating um, is actually pretty interested in the mythology now because he's heard a lot of it as part of solving a case. Mm -hmm. And so he sort of treats her like a storyteller. And so like when they're relaxing together or whatever, he'll say, tell me one of those myths of yours. And so it's a way to just weave in more stories because yeah, she's yeah. she's sort of like the little, who was it, Scheherazade, who told all the stories. <laughs> and uh, But it's fun because then I can squeeze in a little spooky Hungarian uh, myth and then he reacts to it and says, oh, you know, that's fascinating or, oh, that's significant because here's what happened today. And, yeah, it could be you know, a, a light bulb for right. you know if it's a mystery but um also i think it, it adds to the depth of the character to do something mm-hmm. like that to give them this type of a passion you know i i think that adding mythology and lore to the types of series that we write it does sort of take it to another level because we're adding something that's cultural that's relevant that's important to mm-hmm. share and to know and and sort of you know an offshoot of the oral tradition of sharing culture we're doing it through the writing that we're doing and through those cultures that we're intertwining into our stories and into our characters so mm-hmm. i really think it adds a lot of depth to both our stories and to the characters who you know are representing those cultures in our books i think so too and even in the mysteries that don't um, particularly deal with mythology, there's always just the local lore of the town, you know, Mm -hmm. like whether it's a a rumor that has uh, existed for generations, you know, like everyone says that house is haunted, you know what I mean? But like, that's just part of local lore and that that becomes kind of a, a modern sort of mythology. So those are fun too, because you can play into this, like, oh, we've always laughed at that, you know, that superstition or that tradition. But if people have to then start looking into it and saying, wait, maybe there's a reason why people have this superstition, you know, maybe something happened, maybe we should be looking into something. And, you know, the link between mythology and reality and common sense. Yeah, I think it's important that it's not there just so that we can put it in there, but it does does have some relevance to the town or to the people or to the solving of the crime and the mystery. You know, we're not just throwing it in gratuitously. Here's some culture, here's some lore for right, you. Right. right. Well, Julia, this has been so fun uh, talking. Yes, so much for inviting me and for giving me some good book ideas. Yeah, The Ballad of the Whiskey Robber. It's really, oh, yeah. really good. Highly, highly recommend. And I would, if you are uh, interested in audible books or audiobooks, I would suggest um, listening to it because the author of the book actually narrates, but it's done like an old radio show where they have other actors that oh. come in and play different parts. And it's just fascinating. You know, he's, he's uh, the character. I wish I could remember his name, but um, you know, he was like, uh-huh. he was a goalie. He's the worst goalie that ever played, but he played and he, you know, was there for a long time. Just 
weird things, you know, it was just really interesting. So is the main character Hungarian? Yes. Yeah. It all takes place in Hungary. So let me see what, um, and so is the reader also Hungarian, the one who reads the, no, um, that's narrated by a variety of people, a radio cabaret style performance of this award-winning book features, uh, these different actors. Let's see. Book of the Year, New York Times Editor's Choice, Ballad of the Whiskey Robber tells the hilarious and improbably true story of Attila Ambrose, the Robin Hood of Eastern Europe. He's the one-time pelt smuggler, goaltender, possibly the worst in the history of pro hockey, um, pen salesman, Zamboni driver, grave digger, church painter, roulette addict, building superintendent, whiskey drinker, and native of Transylvania, who's decided that the best thing to do with his time is to rob as many banks as possible. Oh my gosh, that sounds fantastic. Oh, so good. Yeah. And I, again, I learned so much just about Hungary and the whole, the whole region really. And, hmm. and, um, yeah, just, uh, kind of a, sad country in how they tried to fight for identity, you know, when they were, oh, yeah. you know, oppressed by so many countries around them. And yeah, oh, they have a terrible history. Part of the culture, by the way, is they're sort of known as a sad people. And so like my dad, whenever he'd be depressed or, you know, my oldest brother had all these moody times and we would say, Oh, you're so Hungarian. And my dad would say, we're a sad people with a sad history. <laughs> and that was his uh, justification for depression. That's but. a sad bite. <laughs> That's pretty mm-hmm. great. Um, okay. Well, again, thank you so much for being here. Oh, absolutely. I enjoyed it. Great. Yeah. And good luck with all of your writing endeavors. You have so many things, you know, um, Everybody who's listening, go to Julia's website, which is www.juliabuckley.com. Yes, and I'm also on Facebook under Julia Buckley Mystery Novels, so you can chat with me there. And uh, yes, and I enjoyed hearing about your novels as well. I want to look into this Irish uh, mythology. Yeah, likewise. We'll just have to swap. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Come back for more tips and tricks about fiction writing and learn more about our online courses at www.writersparkacademy.com. I'm Melissa Bourbon. Thank you for listening. And until next time, happy writing.